Morse, that you? Look, just bring it in slow, okay? I don't have all day. Horse! Just bring it up slow! Welcome to the Mad Max Minute presents Waterworld H2O Minutes at a Time. I'm Rick. I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minutes 139 and 140, which begin with a deacon declaring that he's had a vision, and end with the Mariner staring down two smoker mechanics. We start off this week's clip with the deacon saying, Citizens of the good ship, please now hear me speak. And when I use the phrase, the good ship. What is the word that comes after it in your mind? Lollipop. Exactly. So on the good ship lollipop was the signature song of child actress Shirley Temple. Temple first sang it in the 1934 film Bright Eyes. The song was composed by Richard A. Whiting and the lyrics were supplied by Sidney Clare. In the song, the good ship lollipop travels to a candy land. The ship referred to in the song is an aircraft. The scene in Bright Eyes, where the song appears, takes place on a taxiing American Airlines Douglas DC-2. I have never seen the 1934 film Bright Eyes, so I have no context for The Good Ship Lollipop. However, I did see, in my youth, a lot of commercials about buy the Shirley Temple collection, 48 of her biggest chart-topping hits from... Good Ship Lollipop, to this other song, to this other song, and the Shirley <laughs> Temple Collection, a five-CD set. Oh, the 90s. Always. To say nothing of the Shirley Temple VHS box collection, with all of her biggest movies, including Heidi, which I haven't seen either. I'm not a big Shirley Temple fan. Oh, Heidi I've seen a couple times. My grandparents had it. At their house. So it was in the rotation of movies we watched at my grandparents' house. But she was older in that movie. By older, I mean, I don't know, maybe 14 or 15. Like a young woman. As opposed to the good ship lollipop times where she was like five, six. Maybe, maybe seven, but probably six. Like a little tiny girl. She was born in 1928. So by 1934, she was maybe six years old. I've seen clips of the performance of Good Ship Lollipop, so I have that image in my head with her black and white, with that skirt that's so ruffled that it's literally standing out straight, and it, like, matches her hair. Think of Shirley Temple hair, and that's what her skirt looked like, and her just bouncing around so cute that everything just jiggles. Her hair, her curls jiggle, and her skirt jiggles, and it's adorable. So, yeah, I've got that imagery in my head, and I have the song in my head. Since I first reviewed this clip before recording, I've had that song stuck in my head. Well, that line, because I don't know the song. Yeah. Did you watch the performance of that song from the film? No. Did you? I did. I called it up on YouTube, and it's so weird, because Shirley Temple, this five-year-old little girl, is in this plane with this man, who is clearly her guardian, and, like, 11 other men. 
are passengers on this plane? Because I guess, hey, it's 1930s. Why put dames on your airplanes? I don't know. But they bring up the subject of the good ship lollipop, something about candy or something. It's the pilots being charming or something over the radio. And so she's dancing up and down the aisle of this airplane, singing to all of these random men about the good ship lollipop flying to Candyland. And at one point they start picking her up and passing her around and this choreographed thing. And it is the most awkward thing I have ever seen. Cause I'm like, who are these grown men? What are they doing to this child? Right. What the hell is going on? Like, where is the air marshal? <laughs> he should be asking this child if she is supposed to be with her guardian. I was about or to say, Or is she yeah. being abducted? <laughs> it was so strange. And I was looking down in the comments on the video. It's like, at this moment and at this moment, you can see her trying to like pull her dress down. Because she's wearing a child's dress, so she's got, like, shorts underneath. Yeah. But she's still trying to make it so that her skirt isn't, like, riding up while all of these men are passing her around. It's just so freaking strange. And it has absolutely nothing to do with this scene, but you cannot say good ship without people adding in lollipop, because that's just culture. It is. It's film history. We have no choice. We have to address it. So the D's is now the good ship lollipop. Apparently. Cool. The deacon says to his followers that he has had a vision. And as you mentioned last week, we have a dissenter who cries out that they are tired of his visions. The smoker in the crowd cries out, what about this land that you promised us? And it's really the first indication that we have that there are people that are not fully on board with the deacon. Every other smoker we've seen up to this point has been all in on the smoker plan. And here we get to see someone who is there in the midst of everybody saying, yeah, but what about? I know I've talked about this before. I've always find it fascinating to take a look at the normal people in a cult, especially in movies. We're presented with the top brass, the sycophants, the ones who are, like you said, all in. And that doesn't give you a good idea of what it's really like here. Mm -hmm. To do that, we need to talk to this guy in the crowd who's like, come on, you've been talking about this for a while. We need land. Where is it? You get the sense that he signed on because of the promise of land. So I think in that case, and probably in many, many of these people's cases, they were once atollers. I assume probably everybody was once an atoller of some kind who joined the smokers because of that promise and chose to live this life on the D's that is of questionable quality because there was supposed to be a light at the end of the tunnel. Mm -hmm. And that tunnel just keeps getting longer and longer. And the deacon does not answer this questioning with violence. He doesn't pull out a gun and shoot this guy and silence him. He instead says... O ye of little faith. And that is a very loaded line right there, singling this guy out saying, oh, you are not as good as the other people around you because you don't have as much faith in me as they do. Look at you, weird standout guy. But he doesn't dwell on it too long because he launches into saying that he has had a vision so great that as it came to him, he wept. 
Yeah, for the deacon, the timing of this man speaking up is rather poor because the deacon is out there specifically to quell these specific issues. Mm-hmm. And he knows that they need to be spoken to. He knows that they need to be fed another set of lies to keep them placated until something. Exactly. He anticipates that soon he'll be able to deliver, but who the heck knows? He canceled the tractor pulls, and so all of these people are antsy for something new. As the deacon launches into saying, and in this splendid tutinous, and then it kind of trails off because the mariner turns around and he notices that there are a couple of smokers on patrol that seem to have discovered Bones' jet ski. Did you find it odd that they look at a jet ski and go, hey, isn't that Bones' jet ski? Yeah. Like, who's Bones? I have to wonder how much personalization do these smokers put into their vehicles? Apparently enough so that absent of the person, they're able to recognize who is supposed to be riding it. Yeah. I've thought about this for quite a bit in context of my own life and the vehicles of my friends. And probably more accurately, the vehicles of my coworkers. If I was out and about and I saw a friend's car or a coworker's car in a parking lot, would I recognize that car? Would I go, oh, hey, Susie's here. I'll go inside and see her. I don't know if I would. There would have to be some kind of differentiation, bumper sticker, something dangling from the front mirror. A big sticker on the window. Yeah, there'd have to be something to differentiate. I have an example. I was driving around town and I pulled in behind my mother. And the only reason I was able to tell it was her, she drives, you know, a vehicle just like everybody else, was that they have kayaking stickers in their back windows. I'm like, oh, hey, I can tell that's my mother's car. Mm -hmm. I do really appreciate what that tells us about this society. It's not necessarily the society that we have been shown. We've been shown dirty, mindless, scavenging killers. Faceless. Faceless, yes. We haven't really had names for people before Bones and Horse. But now that we are on their territory, we're starting to see that they are real people. Yeah, that's what I really appreciate about the book is that these smokers are given names. Like the smokers that the Mariner took out. Yeah, we've got Bone, who he took his jet ski. But then later on in the book, it talks about making sure that he grabs Chester's shotgun. And Chester was the other guy that got taken out at night. And one of these jet ski guys that are poking around, their name is Horse. Yeah. And we're going to hear that name shouted a couple of times. So Deacon's voice comes back as the Mariner climbs up onto the railing as the Deacon says that he saw, and you know what it is that I saw, I saw the land. And the crowd of smokers cheer because there's nothing they like hearing about more than land. Meanwhile, the Mariner takes this opportunity while the smokers below him are distracted to leap through the air and fall down on top of them. And it's excellent. This whole scene is a little intense. He jumps down from this really, really high point, jumps between them, catches them on his way down, and keeps going down into the water. And then he holds them by the ankles and we watch them struggle. We watch them die. Yeah. It's kind of a lot. <laughs> I like how he does this because in a previous scene, he showed how he can sneak up below people and pull them under the water. And here he just happens to be above them and he's able to do it just as effectively. 
yeah, it really showcases that his abilities aren't simply that he can breathe underwater. He is good at things despite that ability. Yeah. I want to dive into the book. Basically, he has looked at all of the smokers on deck and looked down at the smokers below him and realized that two on one is a lot better than 200 on one. When they finally looked up, the two smokers saw, much too late of course, the mariner dropping down like a stone between them, grabbing onto them in a double headlock, taking them right over the side of their boat and into the water with him with a splash. Once underwater, still holding the men, he pulled them down deeper, deeper, their air bubbles trailing desperately away, but they were powerful brutes, and one of them squirmed out of his grasp, the one with the harpoon rifle managing to trigger it as he did firing at the mariner who twisted out of its path, allowing the second smoker to get the shaft, blood streaming blackly from his instantly dead body. The smoker with the harpoon rifle was out of harpoons and air. He frantically swam towards the surface, air bubbles exploding from him, then diminishing to nothing, as the mariner caught him by the ankle, holding him down a few yards from the surface. The smoker clawed wildly at the water, staring up at a watery window he could neither open nor reach, occasionally looking down with wide, frenzied eyes, searching for pity in the mariner's face. A useless search. Oh my goodness. <laughs> wow. I think hearing it described in that way definitely adds to my experience of watching it. I like that the book kills the two smokers in two different ways. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, visually, that... One of them kills the other one by mistake. It also kind of reduces the emotional impact of watching this man drown. Moving it from two people to one person, I don't know, it makes it more intimate. We can really focus on him and what is happening to him and how he feels about it. And that's more shocking and more sad, especially it now that we know his name. <laughs> it's odd because... In the movie, you've got the longer-haired smoker who loses his air, the bubbles surge out of him, and then he goes limp. But then you've got that second smoker, and he probably has noticed that his friend has died, and so he's even more motivated to get up to the surface. And the mariner is just sitting down there, holding on to these two ankles, just giving them a shake every so often to see if they're still kicking. It's pretty cold. I mean, it's certainly effective. It is the most effective means that the Mariner has of dispatching with his enemies because he has that advantage over them. And it was certainly advantageous to get rid of them as quickly and quietly as he did. He did not alert anybody else mm -hmm. to his presence. And that was definitely useful. The splash is the only thing to give them away. So once he is done dispatching of these smokers, we get a shot. It fades to the Mariner as he surfaces wearing equipment that he has taken from one or both of the smokers that he has drowned, and then he swims over and climbs onto one of the jet skis. The theatrical cut trims this shot to exclude him climbing on the jet ski, but I <laughs> look at this and I think, oh, this has got to be a nod to 1979's Apocalypse Now. Oh, yeah, the rising out of the water? Mm-hmm. Like, straight up? That does feel like a nod. Yeah, it does. It's certainly different because you don't have the doors playing in the background and it's not <laughs> the middle of the night and lightning and all that other stuff it's not like the mariner is going to meet the deacon at the back of the blue bus or anything like that but it is cool to think that we've got a little reference to one of dennis hopper's previous movies cutting inside the d's we see a smoker walking around past his fellows towards a big hole in the side of the ship 
it's a good opportunity for us to get to know him a little bit better by diving into the book. All right. There's a little scene that happens. Smitty was the smoker in charge of the launching room. A good-sized chamber right at water level. Short ramps led in and out of the giant rust hole in the side of the ship, with two feet of water standing in the chamber, allowing smokers to pilot jet skis in and out of the Ds. A number of the vehicles, in various states of repair, lined the metal walls. Two pain-in-the-ass smokers, Truon and Jang, had dropped by to hound him about getting their jet skis back up and running. The vehicles had been out of commission since the Oasis raid. Didn't they know he was a busy man? I'll get to it. I'll get to it, Smitty told them. I'm the one who's going to make sure these things are safe enough to ride. You want to perish in some terrible accident, you lame brain morons? The noise of an approaching jet ski summoned him to the rusted-out opening of the chamber. He plodded through the two-foot puddle and straddled the entrance, legs apart, arms akimbo, squinting out into the fog. Horse, Smitty called. That you? Throttle down on that sucker, for crab's sake, bring it in slow. But there was instead a sudden revving of the jet ski engine. I said slow, damn it, you're gonna... And those were Smitty's last words, as the jet ski came flying into the chamber, slamming right into the smoker's chest, caving it in, killing him. Oh, a couple things make so much more sense in the book. First of all, the little bit of water that's inside, creating this like interior pool for the jet skis... Genius! I love it! That's such a good idea. Mm -hmm. Such a good idea. I also like the way that Smitty yells out into the fog. I think the movie took too long about it. We didn't need this tension rising moment that we got. Yeah, the Mariners hanging out in the fog bank for two or three shots. Yeah. As Smitty yells out at him, and it's just a bit more than we need. Right. Also, his words. I'm not sure if you felt the same way about them, but... Okay, here's what Smitty says. Horse, is that you? Look, just bring it in slow, okay? I don't have all day. Those two statements oppose each other. Bring it in slow. I don't have all day. So I'm like, okay, well, do you want him to bring it in slow, or do you want him to get it done? The Pick slower one. he takes it in, the longer it's going to take, right? Right. This might be a case of, in-universe, people using turns of phrase that they don't understand. It might also be that if you don't take your jet ski up the ramp a little slowly, it's going to fly out of control and it's going to cause more trouble for everybody. That's very true. It certainly causes trouble for Smitty. We get a quick push in with the camera on Smitty as he's holding his arms out in front of him. And then we cut over to the side where we see the Mariner launching through the hole in the wall. And he smashes into Smitty, who has been replaced with a mannequin here. I'm not a huge fan of this mannequin. I think the arms are not positioned in the correct way based on the shot we just saw. I imagine that when Smitty is standing in the hole shouting, I said slow, he has his hands out in front of him, perpendicular from his body. Yes, he does. And when we see the mannequin, his hands are instead off to his side. Right. Far too wide for what we just saw. And the way they've animated the right arm, it's moving too much in relation to the rest of the body staying still. Also, the legs look like they're canted in a little strange. They bend inwards at the knee as if Smitty is in need of the restroom and he's waiting to go to the bathroom until Horse gets in. The entire posture of this mannequin looks really strange and it's on screen just a little too long. 
<laughs> for the quality that it has. Right. It would have been fine if they'd done this a little bit faster. Exactly. And so the Mariner, like I said, crashes into Smitty, and the two of them slide across the floor and smash into a pillar, leaving Smitty's body pinned between jet ski and pillar, and the Mariner sitting on his jet ski looking down at this man who he has just killed. And the Mariner doesn't seem to know what to do initially. He seems a little confused, as it were. And the theatrical cut removes this scene with Jang and Truen walking up to observe what has just happened, which I think is a bit of a bummer because I really like these two. They're pretty great, and they teach us something about the culture of the place, which I always appreciate. I like how they walk up and Zhang has a cigar that he's working on, and Truen is a bit taller and ganglier, so he's a bit goofy looking. But you get a close-up on the Mariner, and he turns off the jet ski, grabs the gun from the sheath, and you can tell that he is not quite sure how this interaction is going to go. Right, He's waiting for them to indicate something. Right. Is this going to be a fight? Are they going to let him go? By all accounts, they should look at him, and it should be an Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade situation, where Indy and his father, they're in the big mechanical fireplace and they spin around and they reveal the Nazi radio room and there's that one lady with the clipboard and she sees them tied to the chairs back to back and she seems to smile at them and then she screams alarm and the whole castle springs to life. And so (laughs) the Mariner is likely thinking that that is what the situation is going to devolve to and he is stuck in an odd position. Right, he literally was just stuck in this position a few moments ago Mm -hmm. with another pair and he took them out handily, but he had certain advantages out there, namely the water and his height. And they didn't know he was there yet. He has no such advantages here. All he has is a weapon, which he draws. Yeah, He doesn't even have the two feet of water in the room to rely on. Like if he had two feet of water, he could in theory pin them to the ground and drown them, because I'm pretty sure you only need two inches to drown someone. Yeah. As long as you can cover the mouth and nose, you're golden, which usually only takes two inches, I guess. I've never tried. But he's in a fairly dry room, which seems odd in as far as using this as a place to service your jet skis. And store them? Yeah. I really like what Max Allen Collins pointed out in the book, saying, yeah, The room is flooded by two feet so that they can move the jet skis around. It makes perfect sense. It's amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. They should have been very cool in the movie. Although I get why they didn't. He's not here for very long. And that would have been tricky and expensive. Yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah. I guess. I think it's kind of not worth it for them to do that effect. So we're going to leave the Mariner in this, I guess, awkward is a good word for it, situation. Come back next time. The smoker mechanics will laugh off the death of one of their co-workers. Enola will annoy the Nord, and the Deacon will share his vision for when he finds Dryland. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Waterworld was written by Peter Rader and David Tuohy, directed by Kevin Reynolds, and presented by Universal Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of danielbatista.com. 
Our home on the internet is madmaxminute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Mad Max Minute. And like us on Facebook by searching Mad Max Minute and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash Thank you for joining us for Waterworld episode 70. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.